0: The first scripture reading is from Psalm 98. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gotten him victory. The Lord has made known his victory. He has revealed his vindication in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the victory of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre and with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who live in it. Let the floods clap their hands. Let the hills sing together for joy. At the presence of the Lord. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. This is the word of the Lord.
1: We'll continue with our New Testament lesson, which comes from John chapter 15, verses 9 through 17. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No greater love is there than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends because I have been made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. I'm giving you these commandments so that you may love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. How many people here play board games? That's more than I expected, actually. Now, my experience has been that there are two types of board game players. There are people that play for fun and help pass the time on dark, cold, winter nights, and there are other people whose only goal is to win at any cost. These competitive types love playing with each other and comparing strategy and trying to outwit and outsmart each other, but if you're not very good at board games, you can walk away from an experience with a player like that feeling just a little bit bruised and mistreated. I think the worst game for that is Monopoly. And part of why Monopoly hurts the most is because you invest a lot of time in a Monopoly game. Games can go on for two hours, and you can find yourself an hour and a half in, losing everything you have in one bad turn. I've never been a big fan, but my wife, Haley, loves board games. And it wasn't until we were about two years into our relationship that I discovered that she's one of these really competitive types. Thankfully, she's away for a family funeral this weekend, and I can tell you this story without her in the room. I knew Haley had a competitive streak, but it wasn't until a game of Monopoly over the Christmas holidays in Scotland that I discovered just how competitive she was at board games. We were at a friend's house for Boxing Day, and we convinced their 90-year-old grandfather to play with us. And the game was going on fine, and we were about an hour and a half in, and then the whole thing fell apart because Haley got half the property on the board and started bankrupting everyone (laughs) one turn after another. And it was around this time that Grandpa Fred landed on Haley's most expensive property that had a hotel on it, and he only had $50 in the bank. Haley promptly said, you're out. And instead of leaving it at that, And just letting him exit the game gracefully, she explained that in addition to giving her his last $50, he would also have to give her all of his property, he would have to sell his houses and hotels, the few he'd purchased, back to the bank for half their value, and then also hand that money over to Haley as well. And I can't repeat his reaction to that in church, (laughs) but I will say that I've never heard anyone speak to my wife or to a minister that way since. Now, even when it's imaginary, giving away something that's valuable to you hurts. It's painful. Our instinct is to hold on to what we've got. And if we have anything left over, we want to set it aside for a rainy day. And that makes sense. That's how we survived as humans for millions of years. But there are times when that instinct can go into overdrive. I thought of Haley this week when I came across a quote on generosity by a well-known CEO. He says that some people act like life is an oversized game of monopoly, where the goal is to win or accumulate as many properties as you can, either by purchasing outright or outwitting your opponents with clever trades, and then building houses and hotels on your properties, collecting rent, and slowly bankrupting everyone else on the board so at the end you can count your stacks of money. He says, no. Life is more like a game of Crazy Eights or Uno, where the point is to get rid of your cards before anyone else. He says, in those games, you don't want to get stuck with cards because every card in your hand at the end of the game counts against you. And you don't want to be at your funeral with leftover cards. Now, that could be a great quote for stewardship, but I think it's a bit on the nose for us. We are continuing our stewardship series and looking at John chapter 15, and scholars call this chapter, Jesus' farewell discourse. This is where Jesus tries to summarize his teaching for the disciples before he passes away, and it takes place right after the Last Supper. And that's why there's so much well-known material in here. Last week, we heard Jesus say, I am the vine, and you are the branches. This week, we hear his commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, love one another. And we'll hear some more in the weeks to come. Now, this is a commandment that we hear several times in the Gospels. Love your neighbor as yourself, love one another. And most people think that Jesus came up with it. But if you read your Bible, you'll actually find this commandment in the book of Leviticus, which is written 500 years before Jesus was born. In Leviticus chapter 19, it says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord your God. Now, Jesus shares this commandment. He's repeating an ancient Jewish tradition with his friends, but he adds something to it. He makes it even more imperative. He says, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Our duty, Jesus explains, isn't simply to be nice to each other. True faithfulness and authentic love calls for sacrifice. Giving of yourself and your resources in order to ensure the health and well-being of the community as a whole, sometimes even at your own expense. This is something that Jesus spent his life demonstrating and it's a legacy that he passes on to everyone who seeks to follow him. Now there are countless examples of people who have done this throughout the history of the church, from the first Christians who risked their lives, literally opening their homes so that Christians could meet together and giving of the profits of their business to support the missions of the church, like meals for widows in their hometowns. Many people spent their lives and their fortunes putting their faith into action. And our own church had the opportunity to embody the same spirit early in its history. There was a particularly challenging chapter in the 1850s, which is a hard time for the United States as a whole, when it looked like the First Presbyterian Church of New Vernon might actually close its doors. This is only 25 years after its founding and after its second pastor moved to another community. And I found a story about this in George Torba's book on the history of our church. And what I'd like to do this week and over the next few weeks is have him tell us these stories from his book as we revisit our history.
2: Whenever a crisis in a church's life marks a turning point, there are opportunities for both good and ill to take hold, This was definitely the case here in New Vernon. There was a very real danger that the church would falter, having less than 100 members at the time. But it was also a time for them to build upon the church's strengths in the past and renew its life as it sought to minister to the needs of the greater community. These risks and opportunities were prominent realities for the congregation during the next four decades. Three brief pastors followed in rapid succession after Joseph Corey left in Vernon and they tell us how difficult it was to heal the division within the church. William Hunting came as an experienced pastor that lasted little more than two years. Elias Crane was here less than six years. His ministry ended in discord after the resignation of one of four elders. And Luther Van Doren's work, brought the first signs that some degree of healing, which made it possible for the congregation to move forward. During the ministry of Elias Crane, financial difficulties made it necessary to request that the presbytery join the New Vernon and the Myersville congregations as a yoke charge in order to cover the minister's salary. Crane had moved to New Vernon after completing his theological degree, Princeton Seminary, and soon married Mary Pruden of the Congregation. During the years that he lived here, he would conduct services at both churches on Sundays and meet with each session as well. Throughout those years, several attempts were made to raise the entire $500 for his salary, but the effort was not successful until the very last year of his pastor when the Congregation received a grant of $100 from the Presbyterian Home Mission Society. To subsidize his income so that he could focus his pastoral work here in Vernon. This subsidy continued for several years after Luther Van Duren arrived, helping the congregation through a very difficult time. Throughout this time of difficulty, however, the congregation began to designate special offerings for outreach beyond the local community. What they could not afford to budget for this outreach. They were trying to accomplish through special appeals for foreign mission work, for developing new congregations, for Christian education work, national missions, and the Presbyterian Bible Society. These appeals were scheduled at two-month intervals, and they made it possible for the congregation to make regular commitments to others, even as they struggled to support their own pastor.
1: So I found that story fascinating because I would never have guessed that this church would have been a position that it needed financial support from the presbytery itself and required to link with another congregation. But we have a historic link with that Myersville church. And Barbara Aspinall, who's the minister there, still teaches a Bible study today. So we continue that link in a different way. It's also interesting that even when they were struggling to ensure they had enough resources to support themselves, The people of this congregation felt compelled to give, even at their own expense, to support the greater work of the church and ensure that causes important to them succeeded. This is a powerful example from our own history, and it's a powerful embodiment of Jesus' teaching. The call to love others as God loves us is not some kind of saccharine platitude. It's a challenge to take risks to step out beyond what is familiar to us, and to be willing to truly give a part of ourselves without really knowing what the end result of that giving will be. Now, as a church, we're charged with being an engine of transformation in our society. Our calling is not only to teach people what to believe or how to believe about God, but is also to demonstrate in real and tangible ways how those things that we believe affect the way that we live our lives. And churches that are effective at doing this can transform the communities in which they live. On our own, doing this would be impossible. But as a church family, we are united and we're empowered by God's Holy Spirit. And together, we can embody that love in new and innovative ways that we knew Vernon. My prayer is that God's Spirit might continue to move among us, inspiring us to step out in faith just as those who came before us did. And as we do... We might bring God's transforming love out beyond these four walls and into this community in many new and exciting ways. We're already doing a lot to share that right now, and I prepared a short video to show you some of those things, and I think Rachel's going to put it on the projector for us. using the affirmation of faith as it's printed in the bulletin.